Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Editor's Desk here on Biz News Radio. I'm Felicity Duncan and with me, as always, Alec Hug. We're going to kick off this week, Alec, by talking about a big decision that a lot of South Africans are facing right now related to NASPARS and the process listing in Amsterdam. So, you know, a lot of South Africans are sitting with, um, a, you know, a number of uh, existing NASPAR shareholdings, and they have a choice to make now as this new listing happens, which could have very serious uh, tax implications for them and could be a bit of a cash flow knock. Um, but I know you've been talking to a lot of people about this, and I'd love to hear your insights and, and what you think that people should do, because there's plenty of people, my mom is one of them, just ordinary people who have a few NASPAR shares and need to make what uh, amounts to a fairly uh, substantial choice. Yeah, just by way of background, everybody who owns a NASPAS share is going to get a share in process, which is going to be listed in Amsterdam. NASPAS, the, the existing company, will continue to hold three quarters of the equity in process. But if you are invested in NASPAS through a pension fund or a, re a retirement annuity or a unit trust, there's no decision to be made because they'll just take up the process shares and they're untaxed. But as an individual, when you take up your process shares, you have to pay tax on the uh, capital gain that you've made. Now, many people, NASPAR has been a spectacular investment. So many people will be looking at this and blanching, thinking that, well, they might have bought the shares at uh, 150th even of what they're sitting at at the moment. And now they have to put a lot of money into paying off the tax or just sticking with the NASPAS shares themselves. In other words, getting extra NASPAS shares rather than a holding in the Amsterdam company. Having spoken to quite a few people on this, I think it really is, obviously it's a personal decision, but the, the best approach I would suggest is that you actually take up the process shares and pay the tax. The way you do that is by well, the way you fund the tax for most people, you don't have the ready cash just sitting there, is by selling a percentage, probably a quarter of the process shares that you're going to be taking up to to generate the uh, the capital gains tax. And why, do, why I say that is when you have a look at South Africa's financial position, when you have a look at Treasury and you consider the, uh, the priorities of this country, number one priority in South Africa right now and again, it came through this week in Tito Mboweni's budget vote, in fact, on Friday, where he explained that we have to keep Eskom going. And actually, uh, on the upside, uh, you don't have to buy yourself a generator and, a, and an inverter anymore because government has made this number one priority uh, into the future. Keep the lights on. Keep Eskom going because there's an understanding that without electricity, you don't have a modern economy. So as a consequence of that, that's our number one priority. The Lights are only going to be kept on, though, by a huge injection of cash by uh, taxpayers. We're talking about 250 billion rands that Eskom needs in the medium term, not even the long term. So where are they going to get the 250 billion rand from, which is about a quarter of total spending of the government in, an, in a year at the moment? So it's a big, big number. Well, it's higher taxes. Where's the most obvious place where you're going to, you're going to hit uh, – the, the public for more money. They already went up last year in one percentage point in VAT, so they don't really have the option, I don't think, given the union uh, resistance to this, to, to put too much more pressure there. Maybe a one percentage point 
but that's only about 25 billion a year. So it's a long, long way short of, of what the country needs. They'll be looking all over the place. And but, uh, the most popular tax always is taxing the rich. And the most popular uh, tax among uh, those who want to tax the rich is capital gains. So from wherever you sit, you have to understand that capital gains tax is almost certainly going to go up in future in South Africa. So rather pay the tax now when it is relatively low, or rel- it's not low in a global sense, it's, it's kind of in line, but indeed into the future it's probably going to be higher. So get your process shares, pay the, the capital gains tax now, because tax is always a, uh, it's an event that you could defer. Why also process? Because it's almost certain that process is going to outperform NASPERS, and the reason for that is NASPERS is a holding company of process, which a process which is itself a holding company of Tencent and other assets. So whenever you have a holding company of another one, you have a discount uh, that is attached to it. So all round, if you if you look at it in that very rational approach, taxes are likely to go up. You don't uh, want to be in a uh, investment. Or you'd rather be an investment, which is a holding company, rather than a holding company of a holding company. Um, so that would be my suggestion. That's good advice there for people who are, you know, who hold a, a few ta- uh, NASPAR shares and are trying to decide what to do uh, with those holdings. Now, uh, something that you've been busy with, and we've been talking about on and off on a personal level for the last few weeks, is that you're looking for a house. So you're you're uh, up in Joburg. And you're driving around <laughs> looking for the for sale signs out there um, and, and trying to find something uh, that you are comfortable uh, investing in and that you have a willing seller. And you've had some kind of interesting experiences with the housing market in Johannesburg, which obviously is, is one of the two most important housing markets in South Africa. And I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about what you've been experiencing as you shop for a house and what you think that says about people's attitudes towards the economic future of the country. It has been an eye-opener, Felicity. In the one instance, you get people who have emigrated. Most people who emigrate uh, try to sell their house before they leave, but others get discouraged and they see that they're they're unable to get the price that they perceive they should be getting for the house. And so the houses are sitting there. And these houses are at bargains. Uh, we saw one uh, recently that was a six million rand house that the agent said they would probably accept four million. So it's that kind of a uh, – if you're looking for bargains and you're looking for um, houses that have been left by emigres, emigres – from South Africa who, once they get abroad, have to keep talking themselves, uh, talking their decisions uh, uh, or reaffirming their decisions, those houses are, are available and very cheap, but unfortunately they're not always suitable. Then you get the houses that we are pretty much, that, and we've seen a few of those, those kind of houses, but the houses that we're looking at is, is just in the normal context where people are moving out of Johannesburg, the commercial center, and perhaps to a smaller area. They might be moving downscaling from because uh, uh, we work from home. We need a little more space than most people, but they might be downscaling to complexes. And even in complexes themselves, you find people who then 
um, trying to find something else. But what I've, I've noticed is that there is a reluctance, almost like a, a rationality that comes into the mind of the sellers in that they're not prepared to drop too far. They know the housing market is under pressure and they know they're going to have to pay less. But I've noticed people taking houses off the market um, when they realize that the the current market value of their asset is significantly lower. So they'll either rent it out to somebody, which has its own dangers, but that is a, a, a decision some some of those houses, some of the people that we've seen have made, or they will actually stay in the house themselves and then upgrade and um, do a little bit of do-it-yourself. Uh, and we've seen quite a lot of that, particularly in the area that we stay in, where people have uh, there's a lot of do-it-yourself or bucky builders around helping to upgrade the value of those homes the gap between the buyers and the sellers at the moment is still quite significant and that's kind of where we've been coming in as a uh, as a as a buyer looking at a a very um, um, very prescribed uh, financial area and in the area that we're looking at we're noticing this all the time. So I guess you could sit back and say, let's wait for a desperate seller. Um, and a desperate seller would almost always be somebody who is emigrating or has emigrated. Uh, and those do exist, but the houses are not always suitable for what you're looking for. Or you need to almost, for what you want, you need to almost pay up a little bit more than what you expected. Uh, then uh, otherwise the seller will just take it off the market. So it's a very, very interesting period that the South African housing market is going through now. We hear uh, research about it being soggy, and certainly there is no doubt that prices have come down. But on the other hand, the prices have come down on average because you have these isolated instances of bargains where people have just given up because they've emigrated. For the most part, though, as uh, we we're noticing that uh, people would take uh, the sellers would take a different approach they're not going to accept sellers who are staying in South Africa anyway are not going to accept uh, uh, p- uh, pennies for their properties i think that uh, what's really happened is that the many south africans are now postponing their decisions to perhaps go to the coast or downgrade or uh, in the in the understanding or the belief that the market will pick up in time. So whether that happens, whether we have a, a permanent reduction in the price of houses in in South Africa, uh, is, is is only time will tell us. I don't think so. I think that uh, if you consider what's happened in the last ten years, we've been through the worst. Uh, as you well know, I'm very excited about the future. But that's when I talk about a five to ten year future. The other thing, of course, as a South African right now, you can, in global standards, get an amazing property at an incredible price. We we looked around the UK uh, at the housing market, obviously, when we were renting there, and the home that we stayed in was sold for £1.3 million. Now, that same house in South Africa uh, would probably go for less than £200,000. So it gives you an idea of the the huge extent of difference or the chasm between value for money that you would get in this uh, housing market at the moment and elsewhere. It's a good lesson for people. And I think it's really interesting that you've encountered a number of sellers who, when you make a firm offer, 
we'll say no and we'll say, no, that's below the price that we want to accept. Because to me, that says that these people, most people, many people at least, are still optimistic. They're still saying, no, you know, the, the worst hasn't come to the worst. My property still has more value than um, what is being offered here. And I'm going to hold out. I'm going to rather take it off the market than sell it at what I perceive to be a too low price. And to me, that's a real sign of optimism, a small one, but an important one. And as you say, interesting to think that perhaps the reason in aggregate that the housing market is soggy is not necessarily that there's no buyers. It's just that there's not necessarily sellers willing to accept what uh, what the prices are that would close the market. Um, and to me, that's a, a more optimistic reading of a soggy housing market than the idea that there's just no one out there to buy. Uh, as we uh, come to the end of the show here, Alec, I wanted to briefly pick up on some news that came out of the UK this week. Uh, the regulator there did a, a big review, an annual review on um, audits and found that on average, one in four audits that were performed in the UK were not reliable. They were problematic. They did not meet the standards, essentially, that the regulator laid down. And now for some firms, it was more than that. Um, Grant Thornton, I believe it was it was one in three. They, so it was it varied across firms. Ernst & Young did pretty well. I think it was one in six or something for them. Um, but overall, a real indictment of the audit market. And it made me think a lot about South Africa, where investors have been badly burned by bad audits over the last few years. And, you know, starting, or not even just starting, but of course Steinhoff is a big one that you think about here and and uh, many subsequent examples, Tongat Hewlett, for example, Hewlerman. Um, there's something rotten in the state of auditing. Uh, no doubt. And in the UK, uh, Lord Donald Bryden has a committee that's looking into audit standards and it's very likely that South Africa will cut and paste whatever comes out in the UK. And already they're saying that uh, you need to get the chief executive and the chief financial officer to sign off on the accounts to make sure that they are fair and reasonable. Otherwise, uh, if not, they go to jail. So there's there's lots of the, starting to bring skin in the game for the executives who at this up to this point have sometimes just been in a position where they've uh, twisted the arms of the auditors to do what the executives themselves wanted and the skin that in the in the game that the executives have is of course in share options and in getting the share price higher so there's there's going to be lots of changes in this and the auditing profession themselves uh, need to look at it we had a a great interview again with david woolham on rational radio this past week looking at audit standards and what need to be changed and i'd recommend anybody to go and listen to that particularly the second half of the interview but in to encapsulate it He's saying that the, the whole process has now become overly complex and complicated, and that has made it easy for somebody who has an intimate knowledge of auditing, and he uses the example of the Psyker uh, Audit Standards booklet being 200 pages long. So before you can audit a public company, you are supposed to know every one of those two, sorry, 2,000 pages long. You, you uh, are meant to know all that information, and of course, uh, when you get a Marcus Uester or others who have a, a good insight knowledge, they can use that to bully the auditors and to browbeat them into putting stuff in the accounts which, which aren't uh, really reflective of the underlying position. So lots is changing in auditing. The auditors themselves want or appreciate that it needs to change. 
and it can only be good in the long term for uh, an economy because if investors have confidence, then they'll put money into equities and that will reduce the cost of capital. that's all we have time for thanks for joining us remember you can read a transcript of this interview up in the premium section you can sign up for premiums just five pounds a month and that is going to give you access to all of our great content and to the great content available from our partner the wall street journal 